Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours to the Cabot Cove Gazette. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys. And we're so glad to have you here with us. We love sharing our passionate devotion to Murder, She Wrote. And this week's episode is entitled Death Casts a Spell. And as always, it's, you know, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to guest stars, including Jose mm-hmm. Ferrer, whom I absolutely adore because he has that classic Hollywood delivery that I think is great. But before we get into our sort of analysis of the episode, Bridget, do you want to give us a short summary of what happens? Yes. So Jessica is summoned to Lake Tahoe, uh, she thinks, by her editor, who has this fantastic idea for a book. She arrives in Lake Tahoe, and actually it was a whole thing, was a setup by her editor's assistant who saw this hypnotist, the great Cagliostro, and thought that a book about hypnotism would be a great backdrop for a murder mystery. Jessica and the assistant are invited to actually watch a private hypnotist session, but before they can even arrive, Cagliostro is murdered. And it's actually, Teej, I think a really clever puzzle. A locked room, Mm -hmm. six people who are hypnotized, and the hypnotist is dead. How do you figure out who did it? Mm Mm-hmm. I love it. Yes. And so who did do it? Well, in a complicated, I mean, it actually maybe isn't that great of a puzzle because it <laughs> takes them an alarmingly long amount of time to figure out that maybe somebody wasn't actually hypnotized. <laughs> so it turns out that one of the guys in the hypnotist session uh, had earplugs in so he couldn't be hypnotized. And he had he had a beef with Cagliostro stemming from some lawsuit and libel thing that happened many years ago that annoyingly we the viewers didn't know about actually i hate when i hate when we don't know the clues right we did well we didn't know that he was connected no but i mean that still connects to what happened earlier in the episode yeah but then you as the viewer you can't guess you know like it's Mm, it's unfair because you you don't have all the pieces to guess i see okay yeah so we didn't know that this this guy this you know uh, what is he, a reporter, that his dad had killed himself because of something Cagliostro had done. And so he's exacting his revenge on Cagliostro by pretending to be hypnotized. Although as motivations go, I think that's actually a pretty good one. Revenge for your dad? Yeah. It was a Hamlet, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but yes. J.B. Fletcher, Hamlet. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, I just, I, I think it's a great puzzle the whole idea of like the room is locked and everyone's hypnotized. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that means that everyone in the room has witnessed a murder, but because they were hypnotized, they can't remember anything about right. it. So they can't provide any evidence. You know, it's a good puzzle. It's just a little bit frustrating that Andy, our killer, um, we didn't know that he was involved with this lawsuit. So we couldn't have guessed that he was the one who did it. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. Um, and it is very clue-esque in the way that it's framed. You know, you have your set of you have your set of suspects and you have, you know, the, the seemingly impossible to solve puzzle, as you put, as you say. So it's very, 
overtones of Clue that I thought. It was. We also we also get um, two two actual murders and solutions in this because the editor's assistant Joan is trying to solve the mystery along with Jessica and Mm -hmm. concocts this whole plan that Cagliostro's assistant Sherry must have killed him because Sherry used to be a nude trapeze artist, which we can talk about in a second. And so Sherry must have gone to the rooftop and repelled or somehow catapulted herself down to his balcony and broken in through his balcony door to kill him while everyone else was hypnotized. Um, And that, of course, is not what happens at all. Jessica points out the many problems with that. But in the end... Uh, Jessica agrees that maybe this Cagliostro thing would be a good book, and it turns out that the publisher really likes the version with mm-hmm. the amazing trapeze artist, murderess, as you call well. them, <laughs> propelling herself off the roof. So we actually get two different murders and two different puzzles here. Right. No, I like that. Yeah, that's a good point. And I also, you know, as I always do in these episodes where we get you know, where it's really foregrounding Jessica's persona as an author. And so I find this sort of assistant editor character interesting in that regard that, you know, she's really putting her own job at risk to try to deceive <laughs> Jessica into writing this novel. Like, <laughs> we need to talk about that because it's just wild. Like, so she's the editor's assistant, but she says, usually all I get to do is proofread, which is weird because proofreaders are, that's a, a different, different part job, of the process. But, <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so she's summoned Jessica to Lake Tahoe and she's paid for their hotel rooms and I'm assuming she's going to pay for their dinner and their tickets to see Cagliostro. But that means she must have like a company credit card. And the whole time they're talking, they're like worried that if Jessica doesn't like the plan for a book about hypnotism, then Joan, played by Diana Cavanaugh, might lose her job. Mm-hmm. Right? And all I could think was... Even if Jessica likes the plan, won't she still get fired for all of these expenses? Like, she's bought hotel rooms and plane tickets, and, like, she's just missed work for a few days. Like, wouldn't she still get fired? Yes. This is another of those cases where I'm just like, okay, I guess this is how publishing works in TV. Like, (laughs) like, this is just, you know, you're allowed to basically do whatever you want and get away with it. Now you know why books are so expensive. I mean, if they, if I had known this, I would have taken up a yeah, I would have pursued a career in you know publishing. Well, and um, I mean, you and I are both writers, but we've never had a publisher pay to fly us somewhere and put us up. I mean, maybe if you're like J.B. Fletcher caliber, that happens. Mm-hmm. Hey, we have an idea for a book. We're gonna like expense a trip for you. But right, wow, yeah, it's a different world. So speaking of things that we have to decide whether they make sense or not, let's get to the heart of the matter, which, of course, is the hypnotism. I mean, obviously, as I said at the opening, I really love Jose Ferrer. I think that he's not in the for very long because he's obviously the victim. he's murdered. Yeah. But he, I mean, he just has that delivery that is so classic Hollywood trained. Like, you could tell that he's someone who's, you know, been in the film world and that, you know, that's sort of the persona that he adopts, even as Cagliostro. And I think that's what makes him such a great fit. For someone like Cagliostro, who is clearly in love with himself and his own talents. and But let's also talk about the fact that he's getting paid a $3 million contract yeah. to do hypnotism shows at this hotel. Like, I mean, well, clearly... because it's not like hypnotism as psychotherapy. It's like a magic act, right? So he's right. like, 
Yeah, it's like the Vegas, you know, floor show or whatever. I mean, what I'm getting at is clearly we've gone into the wrong line of business. If you and I are running a murder, she wrote podcast and, you know, our other various professions. And there are people in the 80s getting paid $3 billion to do a three-year gig at a Lake Tahoe hotel. Clearly, we have we have taken some wrong turnings in our lives. Wait, saying. I have a sincere question. I don't want anyone to make fun of me, but you know when you hear like about sports or entertainers getting like a three-year, three million dollar contract, um, does that mean they get three million each year or three million over three years? My understanding, at least in this episode, was that it was three million over the course of three years. Like that was my. So understanding. he only gets a million a year. But I mean, yeah. But I mean, I mean first I of all, think a million that's a fine. Is... Like we're now we're we're fine. We're fine. Yeah, that's not that I, much more I mean, than we a... have. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I'm a college professor. I basically make that, right? And I'm a freelance writer. And I, you know, obviously that's what I, I'm rolling in the money here in rural Maryland, <laughs> you know. So, but also, I mean, I do think that it's interesting that we have this plot line around hypnotism, which is another of those things that is kind of ubiquitous in popular culture, both in the 80s and elsewhere. And in and murder so mysteries. And in murder mysteries, certainly. So I'm just, I mean, I'm always curious about how much of this is legitimate. Like, I mean, I know within the universe of the show, it's legitimate, as we see when, because Jessica herself gets hypnotized by somebody. But I'm also just, I, I have so many questions. Like, what's the mechanics of this? Like, is it just someone just talking and you suddenly fall into a trance? Like, I just don't understand how any of this works. So like, clearly I just don't you've understand. never been hypnotized. I have not. Even though I, I tried to do it via Facebook Messenger the other True. night. True. And I mean, I am a Pisces and we are the, you know, the sign most inclined to mysticism and all that, but I'm far too, I mean, maybe it's my Appalachian upbringing. I'm just too skeptical. Yeah. Well, funny you mentioned that, Teej, because I did a bit of research I know that's why on the history. I'm setting the stage for you. Yeah. You, you spoil it when you tell people that was a setup, you know. I know, but... I mean, they know us by now well enough to know that, it, that I'm going to set it up. Bridget's going to have done some research, and here we go. I was really curious about, like, the history of people. Um, Andy is not hypnotized, right? He's pretending to be hypnotized. But I was curious about this whole idea of, like, could you hypnotize someone to commit murder? Uh, is there a history of that sort of thing happening, you know? And, um yeah, so we have a couple of things. There's an Alfred Hitchcock episode in 1958 called Murder Me Twice, where a woman gets hypnotized, but while she's hypnotized, she becomes possessed by the spirit of someone who lived 100 years in the past and murdered her husband. And so mm. under hypnosis, as she's being the spirit, you know, she's telling them about herself, and she actually murders her husband. Wow. So then she goes on trial, and she's like, yeah, I was hypnotized. I was possessed by the spirit. And they're like, this seems really weird. We don't know if this is real. So they say, okay, well, let's try to hypnotize her again to see if it's real. And uh, she becomes the spirit again. And this time she murders the hypnotist. And the point is, we don't know if she was faking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but if she was faking, there's now no one left to say whether she was faking, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty oh, wow. clever. Yeah, what a good episode. It was. I watched it last night. It was really good. Um, and then I was also reading some psychology articles. There's one in Psychology Today that came out in 2012 that says, you know, people did used to believe that you could hypnotize someone to do anything, right? And that's part of the fun of Cagliostro's show. Like when this, when this episode opens, we see him telling people to act like chickens. Mm -hmm. And they're all prancing around stage, clucking and flapping their wings. And um, I really feel let down that we never got to see J.B., be a chicken when she was hypnotized. I know. That was a missed opportunity. I would really love to see her be a chicken. 
Um, but it's it's no longer believed that you can hypnotize someone to do something that they wouldn't do ordinarily. You can persuade them to lean in a direction. Um, or you could persuade them, for instance, that, like, your life is in danger and so maybe you think you're killing someone in self-defense or something. But, mm-hmm. like, if you're not a murderous type, like, I can't just hypnotize you to go murder someone. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's, like, marginally reassuring, right? Yes, I guess so. <laughs> I guess it's a way of revealing our inner selves, though. Yeah. I guess so. So hypnotism is a real thing. Like, people can actually – I mean, that you was can, the question, like, I guess. You can, like, you relax. You remember memories. You lose mm-hmm. your inhibitions in a way that allows you to, like, do things like be a chicken, you know? Okay. I mean, I guess I'm just sort of skeptical of this yeah. phenomenon. Let's, I guess we should go. I need... let's go. Let's go to a hypnotist. Do you want to? Yeah. When we do our writer's retreat this summer, we'll have to, We're gonna have to, to build to do in a, a hypnotist into the it's schedule. It's research. Yeah. We, we'll re- don't worry, listeners. We'll be, report- we'll be reporting back. We'll record the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it'll be like J.B. Fletcher who gets to, you know, pretend that she's, you know, someone who's been drinking and then, you know, that she's a Park Avenue dame. Yeah, so you should guy. explain, though. So part of her research, like as she's investigating the murder, she goes to this other hypnotist now that Cagliostro is dead, right? But this guy's like an actual psychotherapist who does hypnotism for therapy. And she's like, OK, can you explain all this to me? Because like TJ, she doesn't believe it. And she says, I hate to inform you, like, I'm not going to be susceptible to this. Mm-hmm. She obviously thinks it's something right. that only very weak-willed people, you know, can can be can be done to them. Not a sensible um, Cabot Cove matron. That's right. And so he says, "I dare you," you know. So he tries to hypnotize her, and then we cut to her, and she opens her eyes, and she says, "Told you so." And he's like, "Oh, you fool! I have already hypnotized you, and here's the recording." Mm-hmm. And so we get to hear her doing funny voices. He told her to act like she was drunk. Act like she was a rich Park Avenue lady, and she's, but no chicken. Yes, unfortunately, no. But she did, it did give her an opportunity to show the kind of many talents that Angela Lansbury has exhibited outside of Murder, She Wrote. Like, when, you know, she plays Mrs. Lovett from, you know, which is the shades I got when she was drinking or, you know. Yeah, I was the like, working class accent. Uh-huh. Or, you know, even I think there's shades of Mame in the Park Avenue person. Although I don't know that Mame would ever condemn anyone for not ironing their jacket, but... Even so, but there was, I was like, I was wondering if that was just a, sl- a few sly references to some of the other stage work that she's done. Cause that was what I, th- I had a feeling that might be what. Yeah. That's on. what I thought too. And it was, it was just really fun to hear Lansbury do those voices and like mm-hmm. get to show her, um, you know, her, her virtuosity as an actor. Unfortunately, we didn't see it. We just heard it, but. Right. And speaking to references. So this episode also has J.B. Fletcher on the back of a motorcycle, which yeah. is fabulous. Because she does accost this young man, and he, you know, in the pursuit of the hotel owner's wife, who's you know paying someone off, and so you know she races off. It's a subplot that you don't guy. need to know about or care about, truthfully, listeners. It, yeah, it, the, I only bring it up because I love seeing J.B. Fletcher on a motorbike. Yeah, but also because as our Angela Lansbury stands out there, we'll know that she that Angela Lansbury is no stranger to motorbikes having ridden one as Eglantine Price in Bedknobs and Broomsticks which I, I don't know that that was necessarily deliberate but that was the first thing that came to my oh. mind when she hopped up and he was like you know have you ever ridden on a motorcycle and she, I was like well of course she has she's Eglantine of course you know she knows what she's doing <laughs> so I don't know that was what occurred to me as I was watching it I mean, she was also in an A-line skirt when she got on it, too, which was part of the fun. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, you know, I just she... love the, you know, the ever-athletic and ever-adventurous J.B. Fletcher. 
Well, we see lots of athleticism in this episode. We see her jogging around the hotel resort one morning. Later, we see her going into the gym in her lovely blue velour tracksuit. And she gets on an 80s exercise bike, which is like the best thing ever. And I also wanted to talk about something um, that has been on my mind for the past several episodes, but I just think really brought it out to me. So that whole sequence where she's like, you know, stalking after the hotel owner's wife and you hear the, the peppy music in the background. Obviously, yeah. part of the emotions of that scene are always predicated on the music because we hear it as as viewers. And so we sort of embrace the, you know, the charm of it. But I think that it really is a testimony to Lansbury's performance style. Because obviously she as an actress doesn't have that sound in her, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I know it's one of those, like, invisible things that we don't think about as viewers. But I was just like, wow, how great that, you know, the Angel Lansbury has the ability to capture that kind of happiness without the benefit of the music is what i'm saying okay yeah yeah i mean it's just one of those things that you don't like when you think about how things are made when you think about how television yeah. the actual production of it like you realize just how brilliant people are to be able to do that so effectively yeah absolutely i'm so, with you on that yeah. i think a moment that stood out to me musically was um she's talking to bud michaels who's this drunk reporter that Andy, the murderer, works for. And for another Golden Girls reference, he plays the first big daddy in the first season of the Golden Girls. The guy who plays Bud Michaels? He is Uh Murray Hamilton, better known as the Jaws mayor. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, But JB is talking to him, and he he was supposed to be hypnotized, and he sent Andy in his place, and he pretended to be too drunk to go, and she knows that he was faking and wants to understand more about it. and they're talking about, like, how could it possibly be that this guy got murdered in a locked room? Nobody could have gotten in. And right as they're saying it, Jessica looks over and the hotel has window washers descending from the mm-hmm. roof. And it stood out to me. Be- and this is where, of course, that uh, Joan gets the crazy idea that Sherry, you know, somehow repelled into the room or something or used the window washing mechanism. But there's this really ominous dark music when she looks over at the window washers Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. really different than the rest of the music in the episode and it's just like it's eerie it's gloomy and I thought oh something really bad's gonna happen but of course like the motorcycle and the subplot with the hotel owner's wife the window washing thing is a total red herring has nothing to do with anything right there's lots of that Mm -hmm. in this episode yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I had to say I really enjoyed this episode, but you're right. I do think that narratively it's a bit all over the place and it's just another, you know, it's one of those cases where there's not really much to the murder itself. And so we have to sort of have many different strands going on that are false leads, but feel kind of redundant or not necessary, like not necessary or extraneous, but they have to be there because we have to fill up the 45 minutes. So I have a very different read of this episode than you. I think I like this episode a lot more than you do. Okay, go on. I mean, well, I, I did. Is it? It's fair to say that you, it's not one of your favorites. Um, I wouldn't. I'd say it's probably in my, in my middle ranking. Like, it's not one of my least favorites, but it's okay. not in my top ranking either. It's kind of like squarely in the middle. Like, it's you know, yeah. it's a bread and butter, completely satisfactory. Yeah, episode. I think it's a lot of fun. I think the the hotel, the hypnotism. The I think it's just a lot of fun, and I think we get a lot of. Uh, JB running around. I mean, Jessica is excused from the police like the same night as the murder. They're like, okay, you're not a part of this. We don't need you. And she's like, no, I'm JB Fletcher. I'm going to stick around and do some Uh investigating because that's what I do. 
And so we just get a lot of her running around this hotel and interviewing people and doing crazy things like working out or riding a motorcycle or I mean, it's just I don't know. To me, it's just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is also two scenes that I think are worth noting as far as the fun goes. There's the one where someone assumes that she's someone she's not. Like, there's one of the Can we talk players. about that? I really yes, wanted to talk about that because you you said that you got shades that they were um, maybe referencing Lansbury's other career. And I was wondering if that scene is supposed to do that, too. So maybe we should just, just explain the scene to people first. Okay, so yeah. So Jessica is, you know, stalking around the hotel as she does. And someone, someone who's part of a bridge club, is that right? I think it's bridge. Uh, accosts her and thinks that she's refreshed me. Who does she think she is? They, um, Nurse Beecham from some soap opera right, called some, Doctors some After opera. Hours. And she is very insistent that that is who this is. Even though Jessica tries to assert, you know, to assure her that, no, I am not this person. I am actually e- an equally famous person, just in a different way. Yeah, and well, and the woman even has one of Jessica's books in her tote bag, which Jessica, which is like this totally implausible coincidence, right? Jessica pulls it out and like shows her the photograph on the back and is like, that's me. And the woman is like, no, it's not. And like stalks off. Right. Like what, what was the function of that scene? I wondered. Unless like Nurse Beecham and Doctors After Hours was some sort of inside joke that I didn't get. I don't think so. Like I'm not, I don't know that, you know, I, I'm not familiar with any of Lansbury's like, Ex, you know, soap opera work, you know? I don't know exactly what they were trying to get at there. But it was still a very funny scene just because... It's, it's really funny, it's, yeah. You know, it's one of those lighthearted moments that I think that this show does so well that keeps it, with some exceptions, from ever becoming a really dark show, except for, like, you know, the episode, yeah. you know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, but also, I also enjoyed the scene where she's... Um, almost tempted to start gambling. Like you could see, like she's, <laughs> she's really tempted, but she's already exceeded her allowance. So she's like, I've already spent my money. I'm not going to do it anymore. And she, all, you can see the temptation. She has then, a quarter in her hand even. And yep. she's like staring at that slot machine and she walks over to it and she freezes and she comes back and then she glares at the machine. Like, yep, it's how the glare. dare you tempt me? It's the glaring at the machine that I just love. It's one of those, you know, signature J.B. Fletcher moments that I just adore. And like I said, it's one of the things that I really love about this show is that it has such a light touch and it has those little grace notes that always leave us loving Jessica even more. Like there's just, it's impossible not to love J.B. Fletcher is what I'm getting at. Also, you know, as someone who like um, came of age by various trips to Las Vegas and spending time around casinos. Um, I just really love the callback to the pre-digital days when you had cups and you had to carry around your quarters and cups. Mm-hmm. Like that was just such a wonderful bit of nostalgia to me. The I mean, smell, that was a, mm-hmm. your hands would get covered in silver. Oh, it was just, if you guys weren't of gambling age um, back then, you really missed something. We were too poor to gamble, so. Well, that was an awkward transition. Okay. <laughs> But I was going to say, to echo what you said, I did enjoy also the setting of this. Like, it really captured, as you say, the ethos of, you know, of a a Lake Tahoe gambling establishment. Like, it was one of those places, you know, it was, there was not seedy exactly, but 
There was a yeah. sort of, yeah, but just this side of seediness. And you see Just it, this it, side of seedy and then the, the mysteriousness, right, that we're all on some resort, exotic resort. Mm-hmm. So we're necessarily tucked away from society and the rules are different here because of the the sort of transience of a hotel, right? Exactly. Yep, yep. I like that particularly. The tr- I like that idea, the transience of the hotel, which lends itself to these kind of sinister murder mysteries that happen. Yeah. I mean, I've been to a lot of hotels in my life and I have yet to see any murders per se although there was a stabbing at a wedding you I... don't know is the thing that's true i don't know i mean there's you no Davey fletcher to tell me but i was there was a wedding at a hotel i was staying at in downtown dc once where there was a stabbing i do remember that it's always a good sign that you're at a good hotel we were young and young democrats so we were all poor so <laughs> <laughs> um that's there's not a causal relationship between being a democrat and being poor i hope um, can I tell you some of my favorite random things from this episode, Teach? Of course. I love favorite f- random things. Um, well, okay. So I mentioned how JB goes to the gym and starts working out on the exercise bike, which she only does because she wants to interview Sherry and Sherry's in there. Um, and like two things about this I love. One is I could no longer tell what day of the investigation this was. And I was like in all caps writing in my notes like, is this a different day or is she wearing really dirty clothes and is she going to shower again after she's already showered once, right? She's already worked out once. But the other thing I thought was kind of cool, you know, not less tongue in cheek. um, They show Sherry working out Mm -hmm. and Sherry has sweat stains across her chest and in her armpits. And so there's something sort of joyous about that, that, that we didn't feel we needed to make her TV glamorous, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like, I think today we see people working out and we might have a little, they, they use oil instead of water because water dries too quickly on camera, right? But you put a little bit of oil on someone's forehead and that's about it. Um, but she had actual sweat stains. It's not glamorous. It's not feminine, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's um, just really great, like, reality. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also while we're on the subject of Sherry, I do think I really appreciate it about her is just how unapologetic she is about the fact that she used to be a nude trapeze artist like you know she's like i used to take my clothes off i wasn't i mean she basically says i used to take my clothes off but i wasn't like a prostitute like you know and i love that sort of unabashed ownership of her body and what she has had to do at previous periods of her life like i i think that was you know again one of those subtle moments where murder she wrote doesn't wear its politics on its sleeve but where it nevertheless makes clear that there's a certain progressive sensibility to the show that comes out in these moments like that Yeah, Sherry is not supposed to be embarrassed, and it's not, like, a secret about her past, right? It's like, that's what she, that was her job. Even though, of course, you know, the assistant wants to seem that way. Like, she goes out of her way to make it seem as if Sherry is, you know, that her startlement and fear, obvious fear on the roof is a product of, you know, that she's afraid that they've discovered her secret. Although I guess that she's afraid of heights, which was correct. It was so obvious, yeah. Sherry's on the roof while Joan explains how she must have committed the murder. And Sherry's freaking out. And Joan's like, see, see, she must have done it. And it's like, no, she's afraid of heights, right? And then Jessica discovers she had a fall and it was Mm -hmm. traumatizing. And that's why she quit her job. And and that's why she's afraid of heights now. Yeah, so I just, I love the Sherry character, even though, again, she's just one of those side characters that, you know, disappears. I also, um, another random thing is when the police come to investigate Cagliostro's hotel room right after he's been murdered and do their initial investigation, um, the guy who follows Jessica in is like this extra, no name, no lines, and he's wearing sunglasses. Number one, 
indoors and number two at night it's like the best thing ever it's mm-hmm. just there in the background like this random guy inside wearing sunglasses why mm-hmm. why <laughs> and then one of my favorite random things is just how obviously sexually potent Cagliostro is that he's you know basically having an affair with the hotel owner's wife wife Regina and mm-hmm. and I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, if Jose Ferrer offered me an opportunity to have an affair with him, I certainly would. But it's just, I don't know. I love the fact that, you know, that he is clearly so sexually irresistible. Yeah. Well, it's a a bit of a question mark because the husband thinks that what Regina says that he, she was sort of hypnotized into it or, you know, coerced into it in some way. And her husband, in one of the opening scenes, he's actually horrible. He's the hotel owner. Uh, and he's like strangling her and says, you can't make people mm-hmm. do things against their will, even under hypnosis. Um, so it's like, well, you know, did was this consensual, this relationship with Cagliostro or was Regina strong armed into mm-hmm, it mm-hmm, either mm-hmm. psychologically or, you know, through some sort of blackmail or something? It, it's kind of a question mark, but um, she has really fluffy hair. She does, but it is the 80s, so one expects a certain amount of fluffiness yeah. with one's coiffure, if you will. And I apologize to our listeners for my overwrought vocabulary, but you're probably used to it by this point. We're also used to you apologizing for your overwrought vocabulary. Well, it's kind of my shtick, you know? We, have, we all have to have our... It's very... It's called branding. Bridget, look it up. Branding. <laughs> That's the popular parlance so, these days. anyway... Flipping through my pages of notes here. What else do we need to say about this episode, Teach? I mean, I think that's about it on my end. I mean, we talked briefly about the motive, which I thought was a good, strong motive. As far as Murder, She Wrote goes, it's not as, like, flimsy or tissue thin as it sometimes is. Like Revenge for dad killing himself because of a libel lawsuit that destroyed his business. It's pretty good. Although that whole so yeah, yeah. Although the this, the libel plot itself doesn't make a whole lot of no, sense. Caliostro like, cared enough about these nobodies to, to like lead them to. I don't know. That whole part was ridiculous. But I thought the like as a motive, it was fine. But the backstory could have used a little bit of workshopping. I think. Here's here's my little gripe though. Um, Jessica is very fixated on motive throughout the investigation, and. It seems to me that if we're talking about a locked room that's so many stories up, nobody could get in from the outside, opportunity would be much more important for the investigation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And had she focused on that, she would have immediately arrived at the conclusion that someone wasn't really hypnotized. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's only when someone mentions deaf, dumb, and blind that she that it, the pieces fall to pl- fall into place. Yeah, because we had a clue earlier that she was yelling for the guy and he didn't respond and that's mm-hmm. when she figures out he had earplugs in. Yep. Which was, you know, I mean, a kind of nice way of figuring out. It's not the, well, you said something that you could only have known if you were the killer, which becomes their kind of like, lean, their kind of go-to yeah. illumination moments in the later season. Yeah. So it's kind of nice <laughs> to see these kind of aha moments that aren't reliant upon that plot device. So I liked it for that regard, in that regard at least. All right, well, I guess that's all we have for this week. Bridget's giving me the cut motion, so I guess that means that's all we have for this week. <laughs> but we also, we just really want to thank all of you for signing up with us for this run that we've had so far. We look forward every week to chatting, but also to sharing our thoughts with all of you, and we really appreciate our listenership. It truly makes what we do that much more enjoyable. So I'm your host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keith. And thanks again for joining us at the Cabot Cove Gazette, and we will see you next week. The 
Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>